Hello, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. Today we have a, a special bonus episode where we have a guest on our show to talk about, uh, as a follow-up to our Brains episode, to talk about an additional topic. It is my sister, Arwen. Hi. So we'll do, bon- I think we're going to do bonus episodes like this every once in a while. Um, but for right now, Arwen has a topic that she's prepared that she wants to talk about on the show today. Arwen, do you want to get us underway? Yeah. Ooh, I'm a little nervous. I've never been on a podcast before. Uh, screw up all you want. Rustin's editing this one. <laughs> all, right. all right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would like to talk today about the insular lobe or the insular cortex of the brain. And the insular cortex is actually considered to be the oldest part of the brain. Um, so like our monkey brain, so to speak. Um, and it actually has a bunch of pretty cool functions uh, that I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, but they all fall under this very wide umbrella of homeostasis. And so to just start off with the insular cortex, I'm going to talk about its location in the brain. So on the sides of your head and your temporal lobes, you have this very deep groove that I believe is called the anterior gyrus. And if you kind of dig into that groove, you will find the insular cortex. So it is called the insular cortex because it is your inner brain. So it is the deepest part of your brain. It houses a bunch of structures that are very important to us, like the hypothalamus and the thalamus, the cerebellum, the amygdala, um, all kinds of stuff like that that regulate our sensory and emotional processing. And so basically what happened in human evolution was we started out with only the insular cortex as our processing and decision-making functions. And then our brains slowly evolved and kind of grew around the insular cortex, which is why it's in like a fold of the brain rather than being a completely separate um, structure is that the rest of our brains grew out of the insular cortex. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's all in the name, insular cortex, inside. So like I was saying, the insular cortex regulates homeostasis. Uh, which is a very broad term. Uh, It's used a lot in biology, it's used in psychology, it's used in chemistry. And in the human brain, homeostasis means a bunch of different things. So the insular cortex is responsible for regulating our sensory input, and it does that via the thalamus. So basically, it receives all of the sensory input that you're getting from your body, from your five senses, but it also is responsible for regulating emotion and empathy and social cues and exercise and heart rate and blood pressure and all of these things that contribute to our emotional, social, and physical homeostasis. It kind of sounds like it does a little bit of everything. It does. And that's another interesting thing uh, about the human brain and in specific the insular cortex, because the human brain is a very plastic structure, uh, meaning that pretty much any part of the brain can be repurposed to do something else. So if you have a stroke, 
particularly if you have a stroke when you're very young um, and part of your brain dies, your brain will rework itself to work around that dead tissue. And parts of the brain that previously had different functions before will have um, functions that were taken by the now dead brain tissue. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. How how does that process work exactly? How does your brain essentially repurpose parts of it to perform a completely different task? Well, so you know that there is like tons and tons of tiny little pathways in the brain, right? There, you know, the neurons basically. Right, right. And what happens is those neurons Originally, when they encounter dead brain tissue or they encounter tissue that's been filled with blood or no longer functions for one reason or another, they will try to get through it and they keep running up against this wall, right? And they get kind of frustrated. And so after a while, your brain realizes, hey, this isn't working. We can no longer send or receive messages from this part of this area in the brain. So let's do something else. So those messages will get routed around to different parts of the brain and basically your brain will form new circuitry around the dead areas. So like the messages are still being sent and they're still being received in much the same way, but they're just going around the area that is no longer responsive. Like I said, it actually depends a whole lot on how old you are. So when, when you get past 25, 25 is really when your brain stops developing and changing quite as much. So if you have a stroke or you have significant brain damage after 25, the likelihood that you will recover completely is very low. Um, however, if you have a stroke or significant brain damage before that point, you are very likely to make a full recovery because your brain is still in that like very much neuroplastic stage of still growing and still changing it's able to make those changes much more easily than if you were older all right so kids we're not saying to go and do this but now is the time to do it if this were to happen if yeah if there's any time to get a traumatic brain injury it's right now don't do that. If it's on your bucket list yeah. for some reason, uh, you know, might as well just get it out of the way. This is not an official endorsement, though. Oh, please, please don't give yourself brain damage. I'm not endorsing that. Yeah, let, let's be very clear. We at the Primordial Soup Pot do not encourage intentional brain damage. Yes, I only endorse unintentional brain damage. I don't think we should endorse any kind of brain damage. I don't damage. think we should endorse it at all. I mean, I don't endorse it, but I understand it. Sometimes your brain gets damaged, you know? I mean, sure, it happens. Yeah, yeah, it happens. But we, we don't need to be encouraging it. Obviously. Um, so back to the, back to the insular, insular lobe or insular cortex. So those neural pathways are actually pretty important in the insular cortex as well because... Um, like I said, it's responsible for regulating a large number of things relating to homeostasis. And it's pretty much responsible for homeostasis in general in the human body. So when you start to exercise, your insular lobe is activated and it is what regulates your heart rate and your blood pressure while you are exercising. 
if you're in a stressful situation, your insular lobe is activated and it starts processing how to right that situation. If you feel pain or if you feel anger or fear or any kind of emotion, any kind of sensation, your insular lobe is the lobe that is doing most of the processing of how to deal with that and how to resolve that issue. And it will take in those signals and send them back out to other portions of the brain, basically that know better. So our insular lobe, like I said, is our monkey brain. And so if it receives signals that you're getting angry, it will receive those signals, feel your feelings, and then send them out to the frontal lobe, and which is decision-making and cognition. And it will kind of regulate that and try to figure out how to be less angry in that moment. And what I find interesting is that because there's so many tiny little pathways going through the insular lobe in such close proximity, sometimes our wires get crossed in a very significant way. So that's what causes emotions to be associated with sensations. Like, is that an like an intentional thing from an evolutionary standpoint that those wires do get crossed and that way you associate certain things with a certain emotion? Well, so this is one of those moments where I have to say um, that psychology sometimes is a bit of a hack science and that simply because the human brain is so complex that we just don't know. So we do know that a lot of our social behavior is derived from the insular lobe and the way that it processes stimuli. Because of those wires getting crossed, we associate social interactions with emotion. We associate food with emotion. We associate smells with emotion. We associate smells smells with emotion and also with memory because, because that insular lobe is also responsible in some way for making and keeping new memories. So we associate that sensory input and that social input with emotion because our insular lobe is so dense. Our social behavior arose from the insular lobe kind of being like, oh, you experienced feeling happy when you were with this group. Now you want to be in that group. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then earlier you mentioned that the insular lobe is kind of like our monkey brain and that our brains kind of expanded from this nucleus, so to speak. Yes. How do we know that our brains developed that way? Do other do other animals just kind of have a brain structure that is similar to just our insular lobe and they lack the surrounding um, brain structure that we have? Yes. So great apes in particular have an insular lobe that is incredibly similar to ours, but they don't have the surrounding cortex that we do. So they don't have the large um, kind of unwieldy lobes of brain that we have, but they do have that insular lobe, which is responsible for their social behavior and their, and their emotional behavior. Got it. Okay. So Base, are, are there any other organisms that have brain structures that are similar to what surrounds our insular lobes? Like, is that one of the ways that we can measure um, social intelligence and 
rationalization in other organisms? Well, so there's kind of, um, there's debate about that, I have to say. Because there are animals that have larger and more complex brains than we do. Dolphins are a great example of that. Dolphins have incredibly large, incredibly complex brains. Uh, But, you know, dolphins aren't walking around with smartphones, right? But they are very intelligent animals. We know that. So presumably they had a similar evolutionary track to us where they developed that very large and very complex brain around a smaller part of their brain. However, we have found that brain mass has some small correlation with intelligence in animals, but it has almost no correlation in humans. And the correlation that it does have in animals is kind of small and kind of weak. So brain mass and brain development is not necessarily the best litmus test for intelligence in animals. Got it. So in your opinion, what is like, what, what do people use to measure intelligence just based off of examining a brain without any experience of? (laughs) I'm sorry. You're just the, the topic of intelligence in itself is something that's so hotly debated in psychology that I could spend an entire podcast episode on it alone because Well, you have to think. Intelligence isn't just one thing, right? You you see somebody who knows a whole lot of trivia, and you're like, okay, that person is intelligent. You see somebody who has really good problem-solving skills or spatial awareness, you're like, okay, that person is intelligent. You see somebody who's super good at art, you're like, that person is intelligent. All of those things are intelligence. I don't know about that last one. I was just at a modern, like, art museum. (laughs) And one of the things was just a red light in a room. That was it. You know, I've heard modern art described as, well, I could have done that. Yes, but you didn't. Well, see, I I think modern art isn't necessarily as much about what you did. It's more about you explaining why you did it. Right. Like, Like, sure, any of us could put a red light in the middle of a room. But only that one guy can give us a really, really condescending explanation about why it's meaningful and why it's art. For all I know, that was the emergency exit, and he just like put a piece <laughs> of plastic over it. I mean, come on. It was like those people that taped a banana to the wall in the Met and watched everybody like show up and take pictures of it. Yes, yeah. I, I, I actually know. tried to recreate that in college. How'd it go? Uh, I just went when no one was looking and I put a piece of duct tape over a banana and I wedged it between two paintings. I don't think it lasted very long. That's all right. But on the topic of intelligence, my point is that intelligence comes in a lot of different forms. um, And animal intelligence is much more varied even than that. Um, You have to consider that we as humans, having a consciousness and having such large and complex brains that can process so much information at once was an evolutionary boon for us. Um, Because we're social animals and because, I'll be frank, we are stronger in a group. Apes in general, I mean, apes together strong, right? And And, um, because of that, we needed to stay in these social groups. We needed to maintain that homeostasis of the social group. And because of that, we developed these very large 
complex brains around an insular lobe that would regulate our homeostasis in social situations. And the problem with trying to compare other animals' intelligence to human intelligence is that they don't have intelligence in the same way that we do or for the same reasons. So dogs are intelligent because they're pack animals and because they had to hunt and bring down food, right? Same reasons we're intelligent, but they're still intelligent in different ways than us. But because their intelligence is similar to ours, we can still measure it. We're much better able to measure the intelligence of social creatures than we are to measure the intelligence of creatures that live alone. Or, and we're much better able to measure the intelligence of mammals than we are to measure the intelligence of reptiles or cephalopods or fish or anything like that. Because those animals diverged so early on from our evolutionary tree that there isn't really a comparable way to measure that intelligence. So we know that octopi are very intelligent and we know that they form bonding behavior but we can't compare that intelligence to ours because it's so different. I know there's a popular quote, and unfortunately I don't remember the quote. I'm pretty sure it was by Darwin, but uh, in the gist, it was like you can't compare every animal to the same standard. And it showed like a little picture of a fish trying to climb a tree and then saying, oh, well, it's clearly unfit for this environment. Uh, right. Yeah. It's a fish climbing a tree. It's kind of like that. You can say, like, this person is intelligent because they're a good engineer, but maybe they're horrible at something else. And it's the same way in the animal kingdom. You know, you can say this bird is very successful in reproducing. This bird is very successful in migrating. And that those are things that birds have to do, right? Those are things that birds have to do. Those are things that birds were evolved to do. And so are they more intelligent than the other birds? Are they intelligent on the, on the same scale as us simply because they're very effective at reproducing and migrating? I don't know. Now, I do have a question. Does the amount of folds in a brain correlate with intelligence, like increased surface area? So you're, you're on kind of the right track. It doesn't correlate to intelligence, but it does correlate to processing power. So how effectively you are able to process different stimuli and adapt to them depends on how many folds are in your brain. So for example, dolphins have to respond to thousands of different stimuli a day. Their environment is ever-changing and... They hunt in groups, so they have to be very adaptable to the others in their group. Meanwhile, you look at koalas, who are largely solitary animals. They don't live in groups. All they eat is eucalyptus leaves, and all they do is sleep. Koalas have completely smooth brains, and dolphins have incredibly large and wrinkly brains. Yes, that's actually what I was thinking of exactly. I'd seen that picture of a koala brain circulating around, and it more or less kind of looks like a large jelly bean. It's a chicken breast, yes. Also, our insular lobe being inside of a fold um, does mean that the processing power of the insular lobe is incredibly high. And like I said, it's a very dense structure. And it's always been very interesting to me ever since I learned about it in college because 
it explains why so many things that we experience are linked to our emotions um, and why humans in general are such emotional creatures. Obviously, we know that other animals have emotions, but they're not as important in a like a lone or a pair bonded species as they are in a species that lives in large groups like we do. Gotcha. Gotcha. This whole conversation is really interesting, and it is interesting that you brought up octopi as well, because that uh, that was actually what I was talking about in uh, the brain episode that we originally recorded. And uh, toward the end, I you know talked about basically what you're talking about, which is that because octopi uh, have such different brains than we do, it's so hard for us to really quantify and compare their intelligence to our own. Yeah, because their 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 brains aren't even centralized in the same way that ours are, or in the same way that in the, a lot of invertebrate brains are. Do you want me to blow your mind for a second here? Sure, go ahead. Our brains aren't centralized. So how so? Okay, so there is a very large central processing cortex that we have. That is our brain. However, um, in recent years more research has been done on the nerves around our body. And it's been found that there's actually a secondary, incredibly complex neural network that is solely responsible for our gut movements. Really? Yes. So essentially, we have a second brain only for our digestive system. And it's suspected that there may be similar neural networks in different systems around our bodies. I'm I'm just trying to think about how that how that whole concept relates to like Thanksgiving dinner where you're trying to decide how much food to eat. And you're having like this war between your actual brain and your stomach and like your stomach brain where your stomach brain just wants more and more food. And your actual brain is like, well, maybe not. Yeah. So I'm just thinking how long I could live without a head. (laughs) <laughs> you actually you live about 30 seconds so is that the head living 30 seconds or is that the rest of me both so after decapitation your brain lives on and can receive and process stimuli uh for about 30 seconds depending on how clean the cut was and how long it took to chop off your head so you're saying that after they chop off my head, they have about 30 seconds to put it in a jar and preserve it Futurama style for future generations. Yes, sure. They also have 30 seconds to connect your head to a life support system and keep you alive in a hellish existence, uh, which people have done to chickens, by the way. Wait, what? Yes. So there are like... And dogs. How do these chicken... How are these chickens still alive? Like, in what form? So, you ever heard the phrase, uh, running around like a chicken with its head cut off? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so that is because um, the chicken's body is still alive, separate from its head. um, And you can keep the chicken alive without a head by keeping the esophagus and the trachea moist and by feeding it. The chicken will eventually die through infection and through not having regulation of its bodily functions, but you can keep a chicken alive for a while without a head. Yeah, I remember reading about that. I think the record for the amount of time a chicken lived without its head was 
it was at least a week. Yes. I think it was a couple weeks. Like, you would think it'd just be like an hour or two, but no, this is quite a while. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. And I read an article a little bit ago about somebody who had transplanted a dog head onto another dog, which is obviously an incredibly horrific and unethical experiment, but it did take place in Russia. Um, everything is legal in Russia. Uh, the the two-headed dog lived, and both, uh, both heads responded to stimuli, both eyes dilated, and both mouths produced saliva when, um, when given food. Wow. Wasn't there going to be a human head transplant in Russia? Yeah, I think I read a little bit about that, but I don't know if it ever went forward or if it was successful. But, you know... It's it's possible. Um, the only thing that you'd have to deal with is that the brain that you're transplanting onto the body won't necessarily know what's going on with that body, which is actually another thing that's regulated by the insular lobe. Um, so I like literally everything leads back to the insular lobe. Always, always, always. Um, because your insular lobe is responsible for your sense of self and your sense of proprioception, which is uh, where your body is in space. So if you stretched your arm out, you know where your hand is, right? You can feel it, you can feel your fingers, you know the approximate location of your hand. Your insular lobe is responsible for that. So it's your sense of belonging, of feeling that you are in this body that the insular lobe is also responsible for. It's homeostasis. And people who have a lesser sense of that proprioception or who have a lesser sense of pain, who have different views on pain, have different views on negative emotion, et cetera, et cetera, are more likely to have different chronic conditions like IBS. IBS was like the biggest one mentioned because it was talking about how people who don't have, or people who have much more negative associations with pain tend to be diagnosed with IBS more because their insular lobe isn't as good at regulating that pain signal. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So basically in terms of our neural networks and the way we process information, everything just comes, everything just comes back to the insular lobe that you're talking about. Yes. Um, and it's partially because the insular lobe, like I said, contains a bunch of really important structures that we have. Um, and so it's kind of the first stop with like, with the information that those structures are processing, but it, you know, it doesn't really explain how, like the wires got crossed in such a way that you can smell a candle and it'll, it'll remind you exactly how you felt on Christmas 2009. Got it. Got it. Okay. Because the insular lobe is saying this smell is associated with this memory and with this particular right. feeling that you felt. So is there anything, anything else about the insular lobe that, uh, that you'd like to tell us? Oh, one thing that, um, I did find very interesting was that the insular lobe is kind of a feedback loop um, in that it will take in sensations that you're feeling in your body and translate them into emotions. 
let me explain. So when, when you're angry or when you're embarrassed, um, your body gets hotter. Uh, your body temperature physically rises. Your heart starts to beat faster. Your blood pressure goes up. We don't know if those sensations are because your brain is saying, I'm angry and is making your body do that. Or if your body does that and your brain recognizes it and says, I'm anxious, I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm embarrassed. Got it. Got it. Okay. If you guys have any more questions, I'm open. No, I think I think that's pretty much it. But it... yeah, I, I think I'm good here. That was really interesting, though. I'm glad you shared. Thank you. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please rate and follow our podcast on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, please send it to us on Twitter at Soup Pot Podcast, or you can email it to us as well at the Primordial Soup Pot at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you next time.